Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, showcasing the music of the South and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and in this episode, we take a departure from our recent series of artist profiles to dive into a question that I always bring up with the artists and bands featured here. How does Southern music influence culture and vice versa? Basically, who are we and how did we get here? It's a question that can never be answered completely since music, culture, and who we are are always changing. It's a huge question as well and impossible to answer completely. But it's a question which is at the heart of the series, one which we answer constantly in everything we do, in ways both big and small. So get set for a potluck dinner of conversation that we hope will be just as delicious as any of your finest church social gatherings. We welcome Laura Boosinger, Daniel Coston, Ty Gilpin, Fred Mills, Kim Rule, Stu Vincent, and Garrett Woodward as we explore the origins of music from the South, how family and community comes into play historically and currently, how necessity has been the mother of invention for Southern contributions to the music world, and much more. This is part one of our two-part series, which will focus on earlier portions of Southern history and culture and feature and talk about more of the roots of Southern music. Part two will continue forward in time and touch on the grittier side of the Southland as well as how music acts as a unifying element, and look at where these intersections of culture and music have been in the more recent era, as well as where they may be in the near future. This episode is sponsored by Dynamite Roasting, organic and fair trade coffee from Black Mountain, North Carolina, and available worldwide at dynamiteroasting.com. And we're sponsored by you when you support Southern Songs and Stories on our Patreon page or directly on our website at southernsongsandstories.com. We're glad you're listening and hope you may support the music of the artists you enjoy hearing here and can spread awareness of their work as well as ours at Southern Songs and Stories. Most all styles of American music have roots in the South. Old-time, blues, jazz, bluegrass, and rock and roll are easy to point out. Why is that? Well, you have to go back to the very beginnings of America, when Europeans, Africans, and Native Americans came together for the first time. I spoke with Kim Rule, former editor of No Depression, who is currently writing a book on musician, community organizer, educator, civil rights activist, and folklorist Zilphia Horton. There's a lot of tendency in folk and roots music in this country to think of it as as if there was this pure moment at the beginning <laughs> when everything was pure and local. But the nature of the United States is that that's never really been true. People have always brought outside influences in. It's just that it looks a little bit different. It's a little more immediate now than it was when, you know, the Lomaxes found Lead Belly or whatever. In America and especially in the South. Instruments like the banjo found their way here along with African slaves. The fiddle comes from especially the British Isles, the dulcimer comes in from Germany, and so on. The influence that Native American and African cultures had on Europeans and the development of the earliest styles of American music is often overlooked. 
All of the cultures had an influence on one another and brought something to what would become a truly unique mix. One of America's first cultural exports was string band music, which put the banjo and fiddle together in a powerful new context and took the world by storm in the 1800s. I'm going to do a tune called Georgia Buck. That's the Carolina Chocolate Drops, a group from North Carolina that reclaimed the heritage of black string bands going back to the 18th and 19th centuries. Even though now old-time music that springs from that era is almost entirely a white endeavor, back then almost all string bands were black. Whites picked up on it and eventually took over the style in the early 20th century. Even though string bands were a sensation on the stage, most of the music being made in the South wasn't made for a paying audience. It wasn't consumed. Rather, it was shared. You know, music used to be, before the recording industry, that music was something that people did when they got together. It was how you passed the time. It was how you dealt with what was hard to deal with, you know, death and birth and God and all the big questions, you know, there's songs for all of it. It's what people, you know, people would teach each other songs in order to to handle life. Some of these songs wound up being picked up by people like Bill Monroe and turned into bluegrass standards. Some of them were picked up by people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and turned into sort of like folk uh, hymns. Some of them were picked up by blues singers and, you know, they went on to influence rock and roll. And But really at the heart of it, there's there's just all, there's a lot of songs that just, that just moved people and, and got people through. The history of the South is so fraught <laughs> and um, it's sort of like, you know, it, people in the South wouldn't have really survived if not for the songs that they handed down and, and sang together. Sound familiar? You may have heard of the band Canned Heat. That's a song that they made very popular as Going Up the Country, and the original version by Henry Thomas called Bulldoze Blues. I talked with Ty Gilpin of Mountain Home Music Company and mandolin player in the bluegrass band Unspoken Tradition, who pointed to the American melting pot and how it was uniquely suited to invent new forms. Bluegrass especially derives a big, big part of its sound from um, Southern African-American blues tradition. Bill Monroe, who is considered the father of bluegrass, talked a lot about his use of the the blues scale when he was coming up with his style of, of music. 
and his style has been a huge influence on the way uh, even uh, mountain music is uh, played now. So he uh, he definitely contributes a huge part of his approach to that, and it's been carried on through all sorts of players. You know, there were um, blues guys coming to, to Johnson City and playing on the street that, you know, maybe Jimmy Rogers came across them. And, you know, these are Texas bluesmen um, <laughs> that were passing through on a job or whatever, bringing their Texas blues to, to Johnson City, Tennessee, or Bristol, you know, where it would be influencing Jimmy Rogers or A.P. Carter or whomever. So there's always been a little bit of that cross-pollination, I think, in the United States where people have traveled for work and shared their music as they've gone or they've traveled to immigrate from Ireland and brought their Celtic music with them or coming from, you know, the Middle East with the guitar or Spain with the guitar and bringing that over here. Musical invention was not only a result of cultures coming together, it was also born of necessity. So much of the South was rural and remote that it was impossible to take large groups on the road or to cart heavier instruments from town to town, for example. So smaller instruments that you could carry on your back came to dominate areas like the Appalachians especially, banjos, fiddles, mandolins, and guitars. There weren't as many people either, so sometimes you had to just make do without another player in your group. Daniel Costin is a music writer and photographer who had this to say about that phenomenon. The Carters, for me, can only come from the South. Um, They were a family uh, that was living in really the kind of the rural area of Virginia. The the road that's now the A.P. Carter Highway really was a mail route for decades. And um, it was a big deal if you could get to the other side of the mountain. And these people really had to make do. They had to find a way to make a living uh, on their own, and they also had to create and uh, enjoy life and music on their own. That's one of the amazing things about Maybell Carter, Mother Maybell, is any other place, she might, or it was a big city, you know, north, or even elsewhere in the world, she said, well, I'll go find another guitar player. I'm a good rhythm player. I need a lead player. There was no other guitar players around her, so she taught herself how to pick lead notes while playing rhythm, and hence the Carter scratch. But that comes out of, okay, I'm here, I'm I'm the guitar player. How do I play all these things that I'm hearing on record and do it on my own? And she figured out a way to do it. And then on top of that, she, you know, she's singing with her cousin, Sarah, and they're creating this harmony sound that's really, uh, really unique. And the, obviously back in that time period, it was very common to have the male-fronted or male-centric harmonies. And by AP's own admission, he was just basing in. He really was basing his what he felt like just kind of filling the sound around the, the the singing of Sarah and Maybell. And again, this these are Southern people saying, "Wait, um, I like the sound. Um, it may not sound like anything else we're hearing, but we like it. We're gonna we're gonna create it." And to be honest, the Carters created that sound really for themselves. They did not think that it would ever reach the rest of the world, but that they liked the way it sounded to themselves. And just so happened that AP was very headstrong, was willing to drag them all to Bristol, Tennessee for a recording session in 1927. And within a year, the world had found them. Oh, he taught me to love him and call me his place. 
Carter family couldn't foresee the kind of seismic shift in American music that their songs set in motion. They probably couldn't foresee playing music as a way to even make a living early on, and later they were set back tremendously by the Great Depression. So they, like most musicians in the South, played locally and made a living outside of music. In the South, and in rural areas especially, you could work on a farm or in a mill, and there wasn't a great deal of options that could lead to something better. But if you could sing, if you could play an instrument, you might have a chance. For some of these rural places, music was their ticket out. Uh, you talk to folks like uh, Whitey and Hogan, the Briarhoppers, or you know, folks like Earl Scruggs, Jim Shoemate. Um, they were from mill towns. It was accepted that a lot of them would work in a mill town their whole life, but a lot of them didn't want to. And for many of them, music was their ticket out as a way of traveling, as a way of making a living, something other than the life that seemed um, put upon them from the areas that they were growing up in. Yeah, that's a good point. There wasn't a lot of industry. There weren't a lot of other options to get out of where you grew up. No. Earl Scruggs was quoted as saying that he was just terrified of having to go back and work at the mill, and that's half the reason why he got so good at the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just it showed, you know, music, again, this is, goes back to Southern music and full, influencing Southern culture, is uh, music giving another voice to many people, and uh, the musicians going, oh, there's something else I can do here, mother. there's something else that I can talk to, talk about, express, and maybe it will get me on the road, get me uh, away from the life that I was expected to have or I was expecting to have. And that in turn influences the culture. You have someone like Earl Scruggs who grew up listening to other banjo players and then started hearing other musicians going, well, I like that, but what if I adapt that and start playing this to something I like, something I uh, think I can do? And then it evolves and grows from there. And, and now you can't discuss banjo music without discussing Earl Scruggs. But, you know, at one point, Earl was a kid in the mill town going, okay, uh, now what? Now what happens? And maybe I can create something here that uh, I want to hear and hopefully others will want to hear. unmistakable banjo playing of Earl Scruggs, whose innovation helped define bluegrass music. Just as bluegrass had borrowed from earlier music, incorporating jazz and blues and string band ideas into a new form, this pattern would repeat going forward. Laura Businger of the Madison County Arts Council and string band The Midnight Plowboys spoke about this. Well, I think historically, if you look at any um, really popular music, 
there's been this connection, but especially in our generation's popular music, you know, people like Bob Dylan or any of the folk groups like the Weavers or Peter, Paul, and Mary, they all drew material from the Southern Appalachian and brought it to a whole different audience that discovered our music through these groups that had radio airplay. I mean, even Jerry Garcia, you know, people know um, Oh, the Wind and Rain from Jerry Garcia or Obi Ramsey's Rain and Snow. That was one Jerry Garcia brought out to the bigger world. It's great that people like Jerry Garcia, who was way out on the West Coast, and David Grisman, too, would find this whole body of music interesting and somehow weave it into their stuff that they did. My connection to seeing trends, my connection to the label, rather, seeing trends of how bluegrass itself is becoming so much bigger of a tent. It's inviting so many more progressive approaches to what was normally a traditional style. Because the music itself, being participatory and being community music, has spread all over the country, all over the world. So you have people who aren't necessarily haven't necessarily learned it from a gener- generationally, or learned it from their friends and neighbors, but have just learned it through, um, you know, gateway bands. One of those that people talk about is even groups like the Grateful Dead, and there's a connection through jam music and bluegrass because uh, bluegrass has that jam and jazz element to it because everybody gets to take a break and gets to um, explore the melody when they do individual instrument breaks. And there's there's a connection there to all those different styles of music. So that opens the door to other people from other parts of the country to contribute their particular approach to traditional music, which expands and grows the music and makes it dynamic and progress uh, all the while keeping one foot hold in the uh, original traditional styles of it. So I think that's great too. It's a bigger tent and that's fantastic. Some of the Grateful Dead's version of Cold Rain and Snow that they first recorded on their self-titled 1967 album, originally known as Rain and Snow, which was included in the book English Folk Songs from the Southern Appalachians by Cecil Sharp. An example of how everything old can become new again. Talking about that phenomenon was Ty Gilpin, echoing what Laura Businger noted about Southern styles and songs being a wellspring for many artists from elsewhere. Ty also alluded to the community nature of so much of Southern music. That was reiterated with many of our guests on the show, including Smoky Mountain News editor and author Garrett Woodward. But with bluegrass and Americana, string music, mountain music, there's a lot of, uh, like I had said before, pride. But in terms of Southern hospitality, I think it has to do with the, the generosity of the music it's very inclusive it's very welcoming and warm because a lot of these folks learned it on the front porch they learned it from their neighbor or their family member or 
just someone that was nice enough to show him a few chords or even how to just to play an instrument or even sing. So when you start off as a kid in a very inclusive circle like that, there's something to be said that it might even be the first time they were actually looked upon as an equal by an adult where you have a little kid that can walk into a circle of musicians that are 10 times possibly their age, let alone their skill set, but they're just as welcomed as, as someone who is quote unquote a talented musician. So when you have that kind of influence as a kid, you tend to have it in the back of your head when you not only share the music with others as you get older, but also in your interactions with the music because it's something that's very special to the people that not only play it, but the people that also love it and write about it and talk about it and immerse themselves in it like myself and yourself. One of the great things about Southern music is that it has never really segmented itself with the way that society did. Um, if you liked the music, you, you accepted it. You didn't think about, oh, I can't listen to that because that's from a white person or a black person. Um, you just like the songs. And the country soul is one of those great examples, or like Reverend Gary Davis or uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, where, yeah, it's gospel, it's rock and roll, it's all there. Do you like it or not? And that's really what matters in the long run. I think the next generations of musicians will kind of uh, take their influence, the things they hear growing up, and they'll, they'll push it forth. Um, the great thing, and I, I de- identify with this because I grew up in a rural area of upstate New York, is that there's a point you just say, okay, this is me. This is what I want to create. And, um, and if I like it, I'm going to do it. If the world beats a path to my door, cool. If not, fine. I'm going to do this. And uh, I think the next generations of Southern musicians and people who have an interest in Southern culture will continue that path. You know, I was a Nashville native and moved to the mountains 25 some odd years ago. (laughs) And uh, even growing up around uh, Nashville, I found that uh, traditional music was a very much a community um, form of music. And I think it's expressed uh, in no other place better than Western North Carolina and, and the Southern Appalachians, um, in a sense. And I think it's one of the reasons that it survived as a music uh, genre and style, because it is a participatory music it's community music i think it being handed down through generations or being something that people can do at the house around the campfire um is uh, one of the reasons it's helped spread and and survive through uh different generations it's just mountain music and uh, traditional music is older music you know um I think the industry of something like mountain music and bluegrass has been around since Bill Monroe coined the term, uh, but mountain music uh, goes back even further than that. You know, we're talking uh, hundreds of years. And I think the way it survived, because it's been truly a folk music canon, and so uh, something that's passed along through various communities and through various generations. But soon I'll feel alright Cause all my friends are here A grin in ear to ear Making music with my friends I hope it never ends I'm drinking moonshine In the moonlight 
David Vi and Corn Tornado, with a bit of moonshine in the moonlight, which celebrates some of that same spirit of community that Ty, Daniel, and Garrett were talking about. The spirit of inclusiveness and the joy of playing music with family and friends parallels something else that we are known for in these parts, Southern hospitality. I spoke with Stu Vincent from Northampton, England about this, as he has taken many trips to southwestern Virginia, western North Carolina, and east Tennessee. Stu hosts Hillbilly Boogie on internet station Blues and Roots Radio, as well as Bluegrass from Yonder on WEHC in Emory, Virginia. I started coming over to the USA in 2007, and that was to visit Melfest in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Now, prior to the trip, I'd gone on to a music forum, and I'd made online contact with a number of people who would be staying at Sewerfest. You know, we asked for recommendations about where to stay, where it was, how far from the festival site it was, determining that there were shuttle buses and on and, and all of these sort of quite practical things, but at least in the hope that we would have somebody that we could say hello to, say good morning to, not be quite so isolated. Well, we needn't worry. Um, when we got to the, the campground, as I say, you know, we, we got there very early in the morning, we pitched the tent and, and we just slept. We just slept in the sun and it was wonderful. And people came down to see us because we'd, you know, obviously we'd, we'd gone to see the uh, the office for the Wilkesboro Fire Department. So they knew that the, the Brits were there. People came down to us and, and said, come and come up to our pitch. They had room on their pitch. Come up there so that you're you're with us. Um, and we said, no, no, we don't want to put, put you out. But they insisted and, and we, you know, unpitched the tent, took it up to... Um, these these people uh and we sat and and had coffee and and juice and and, and so forth and and started a conversation that's now lasted over 10 years um these people that came down to find us they didn't know us they didn't know really anything about us other than the conversations that we had had but they took us in on those early stages. They they made sure that we knew how you know how Melfest worked, um, what you could take in, what you couldn't take in, just what the rules were, the shuttle buses, all the various uh, arrangements. Took us around different places. Took us around the locality. We took a trip up a trip up to Grandfather Mountain. But the important thing is, these people who we met on those early. Uh, early days, and I mean, you know, the, the first day or two of our first visit in 2007. To this day, we're in almost weekly contact. Uh, some of those people, our friends Gail and Lee, um, and and uh, Gail's sister-in-law Diane and her husband Dave, we're family. You know, it has become family. We were taken in. 
you know, we returned the next spring to go to Melfest again. So it was great to reunite with them. And over the trips I've made, and I think in in the past 10 years, I've made about 15 trips each time. I make more friends. But it's always going back to see our family around Floyd and Fancy Gap. And, 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 you know, if we're talking about hospitality, the, the way that we were welcomed, the way that we were looked after, I, it's hard to describe. It's hard to describe. But we know that whenever we go back there, we are seeing family. I see an old green car coming around the bend. I hear the engine purring and a humming. It's some of our neighbors and some of our kin. Cut the cornbread, Mama Company's coming. They're getting closer now, gonna make the hill. I hear somebody singing and a strumming. The one with the banjo is our cousin Bill. Cut the cornbread, Mama Company's coming. A song that spent seven weeks on the charts in 1968, getting up to number 60. That's the Osborne Brothers with Cut the Cornbread Mama, wrapping up part one of our two-part series on Southern culture and music. There's a lot more to come in our next episode as we leave a seat at the table for Fred Mills, editor at magazines Blurt and Capital at Play, along with our other guests. Please join us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks to our sponsors, Dynamite Roasting, and our supporters on Patreon. I encourage you to spread the word about this podcast and consider helping us by subscribing and commenting on our show and by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, at South Scenes, and Instagram, at South Stories. This is Southern Songs and Stories, where we are showcasing the music of the South and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick. Until next time.